0: Hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. This is God's Word. Please be seated. Good morning. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, we'll be reading there in just a moment. Before we study God's Word, let's go to our Father in prayer. Father, thank you for giving us today and for giving us this time when we can gather to worship and to praise you for all that you have done for us. And Father, we want to be faithful in our service to you. Use us to fulfill the godly purposes that you have for us. And so, Father, we pray as we look at your word that we might have eyes to see and that our, eye, our ears might be open to listening to what you have to tell us. We pray that we might proceed to live before you according to your will and your purposes. Lord, be with us. Keep us from the evil one and the ways that he would try to destroy and tear us from that path. We ask all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Many years ago, when I lived in Brazil, on one particular Saturday morning I received a very somber phone call. One of my teammates was on the other end of the line and said, Barry, you need to come down to the church building right now. There's, there's a problem. So I left the house and when I arrived at the church building And looked at this house that we we were using as our church building. On the left hand side, the, the roof, that left side of the roof was gone. Looking through the front windows, I could see inside about a four foot pile of rubble in the auditorium. Glancing up at the hotel that was being constructed next door, it was immediately apparent what had happened. For the weeks and months leading up to that day, I had watched as this hotel was being built. Massive girders were erected, and then at a certain point, there'd be a platform made out of girders and and cement, a cement floor would be poured. On top of that cement floor would go up a brick wall, and then another cement floor and more brick walls. And by the time this Saturday came around, they were up about seven stories right up next to our church building. And apparently what had happened during the night, a very strong wind had come and blown off that topmost brick wall right down through the roof of our church building and took it out. And so there in the midst of our auditorium, was this pile of rubble. In some ways, the story of human life can be likened to that pile of shattered wood and broken brick. Have you seen up close the destructive nature of sin's vices tearing apart someone's life and ruining the relationships around that person? Have you stared in the face the corrosive and divisive power of lies, and illicit desire, theft, and selfish ambition? Have you suffered injustice because of how sin was at work in someone else's life? then you are painfully aware how sin wrecks havoc, reducing lives to rubble. And if people are honest, if we are honest, if people are honest, they find not only themselves, but but others are broken, incapable of self-repair, and hopelessly insufficient to live up to God's purposes. And furthermore, as we turn on the news and we watch the evening news, we're constantly reminded that this is a plague that infects our whole world. Humanity as a whole suffers from being in shambles. This is not to deny that people can pull together and that they can work out and smooth out problems, that people do do good. People do. It is to acknowledge that sin is pervasive in destroying sinlessness. And that true spirituality lies in shambles. This morning as we dig into this letter of Ephesians, we'll discover there is hope, real hope. We'll uncover answers to the questions, what is God doing to make things right? And how can I live up to the potential God desires for me? Our guide in the study is going to be the Apostle Paul. And he stands at the privileged position of having seen the risen Lord and having received by revelation the message that he gave. So what does one who has received the message he announces by revelation, what does he know that the church needs to hear? Where is he going to focus God's people Paul wrote I therefore the prisoner in the Lord entreat you to walk worthily of the calling into which you were called strive to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace what is this calling of what are Christians supposed to be living worthily of What is this unity of the spirit that we're supposed to maintain? For Paul, it is very important that Christians understand that they have been called to live in a particular manner. In fact, Paul would begin this letter with a prayer. And in this prayer, he prays for them to be enlightened in their growing knowledge of God for a purpose, so that you may know what is the hope of your calling. Now, scholars have noticed something interesting about Paul's letters. Typically, when Paul provides a a prayer in one of his letters, whether it is intentional or, or subconscious, he often identifies the themes he's going to be working on. You know, maybe he's just aware of the message he needs to give, and so he prays that they'll get it. But but Paul often has his themes in his prayers. And here he's praying for the Christians to know what their calling is and the hope of their calling. For us to begin to comprehend what God's people have been called to, we need to go back to the beginning of the story. This is a story about unity about unity being created as a result of God's work. Ready? If if you're going to be filling out your outline today that's inside of the, uh, the bulletin, the handout, you might want to keep it close by because we're moving fairly quickly through this. What happens when someone grasps the magnitude of God's activity and reflects upon it? that person is compelled to praise. If a person really understands what God has done and is doing, it leads a person to praise. And so as Paul is thinking about what he's about to write, and he knows he's going to be describing these things, he opens Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, "'Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. So what is it that God has done? He's going to give us three big ideas, and we're going to summarize those. First of all, God planned to work through Christ. This is the first big idea that Paul unveils in this letter. He chose us in Christ before the founding of the world that we should be dedicated and blameless before him in love he predetermined us for sonship in him through Jesus Christ in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses even before the world began God had a blueprint of what he would do God predetermined that he was going to take shattered lives sinful lives and remake them make them alive into being his dedicated blameless and forgiven people his people and that Jesus would be the means by which this would all be possible in fact this blueprint of what God was going to do was is bigger than just taking the rubble and making it new making new bricks out of it, as it were. No, God was going to do even more than that. God intended to unite those bricks together, those lives together with each other, as well as with the things that are in heaven. And so he goes on to write, He made known to us the mystery of His good will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, To be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. To state what is obvious, this blueprint that God had for the plan that He was going to enact when when the time was right involves constructing something that humanity cannot do. We're incapable of it. Oh, sure, we can make organizations, and and we can even be unified in, in, in working together. And we can play nice together sometimes. But we cannot give life to what is irreparably broken spiritually. We cannot unite the things here on earth with the things in heaven. And God is going to do and had planned to do what we cannot do. But for God to have this plan of what he was going to do is not enough. There must also be the resources and the power to implement it, an accomplishment. And here's the second big idea that Paul will give us in Ephesians. God's power creates spiritual life. And so Paul prays. And again, just to remind us, when Paul is in prayer, typically he's talking about a theme he's going to be developing. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart have been enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the incomparable greatness of his power toward us who believe. What is this power? Well, it's nothing less than the power to take what is rubble To take spiritually dead lives and to make them alive and whole so that they are God's workmanship. And if we focus on the flow of Paul's thoughts, here's how he puts it. Although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. For we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we may do them. And not only do we have here that we are taken and, and raised up into the, the heavenly realms, uh, the bringing, at least in part, of, of heaven and us together, but he also describes the power of transformation in taking what is dead and making it alive. My first job, after I graduated from high school in Australia, involved working in a foundry. We would take these nondescript chunks of what they called gun metal and put it into this kiln, electric kiln, And I believe it was set at 1,100 degrees Celsius. And after just a few minutes, the metal was molten, glowing. And then that glowing, hot, molten metal would be poured into sand molds. And after they'd been given about 15 minutes or a little bit more to cool, we would take these long tongs, metal tongs, and go to those sand molds and break them up and reach into the midst of that and pull out the parts, the designed parts of a functioning valve. Metal that served a purpose metal that was created for a purpose. And this is a description, a metaphor for what God does with our lives. In a similar sort of way, God's power can work in our lives, creating us into a new person designed to fulfill His purposes in our lives. But what about the person who is not in Christ? But what about the person who never comes to Christ? But that person is living a good moral life. They're a good citizen. Everyone's going to look and point to them and say, you know, that's a great guy. That's a great girl. You see, it doesn't matter if you are living better than most other people around you or even if you're living better than those who claim to follow Christ. It does not matter if you try to always tell the truth, to be responsible, to treat others with dignity and respect. If you have not relied on Christ, then because of when you have sinned, sin's destructive nature has severed you from God. As Paul would describe it in chapter 2 and verse 12, speaking of those without the Messiah... They are alienated from the citizenship of of being God's people. And, And the result is they have no hope. And they are without God in this world. And such people are on their own. And one day they will come before God and be judged. But if you have come to Christ, God's power through Christ has made you into His workmanship He has given you life and a purpose. He's infused you with direction on how to live. And this brings us to Paul's third big idea in Ephesians, which has to do with the question, what does God do with all these bricks he's making? (laughs) What is he doing as, as a result of the power that is being expressed toward people through Christ's blood? And the answer is that Christ is joining them together and constructing what God's blueprint called for. He's uniting people together under Christ and He's starting to bring together things of heaven and the things of earth. And as Paul would describe this, so then you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household because you have been built "...on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a building place of God in the Spirit, bringing together the things of heaven and the things of earth under Christ." So what is the unity of the spirit which Paul is later going to urge Christians to preserve and make every effort to preserve it? He has just described it. God planned to bring together everything under Christ. But there was a huge chasm separating a holy God from sinful people. And so God's power overcame humanity's sin and brokenness and remakes us and making it possible for us to become God's children to be forgiven and blameless before Him. And then Christ takes us and He builds us together into what God is making in this world. A redeemed humanity made whole. A temple in which God is going to dwell by His Spirit. And furthermore, this united building that rises up is called the church. And it serves God's purposes as Paul would write about it, to me, less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to enliven everyone about God's secret plan, a secret that has been hidden for ages in God who has created all things. The purpose of this enlightenment is that through the church the multifaceted wisdom of God should now be disclosed to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access to God because of Christ's faithfulness. I have a question for Paul at this point. Paul, you've spent Three chapters of ink writing about God's plan, God's power. I mean, what we want is a checklist. If we're supposed to maintain the unity of the Spirit, if, if you're wanting us to live up to the calling, just give us a checklist. Do this, do this, do this. Why have you spent three chapters of ink talking about what God has done. I have a sneaky suspicion of how Paul would answer that question. I think Paul might say, if you don't know what God is doing, if you don't understand the big picture, then there's a good chance the way you're going to live in serving him is nothing bigger than I'm supposed to be good, so I'm doing good. The only reason I'm going to be doing things is because that's what I'm supposed to do. But what Paul has done is he has laid a foundation of understanding for why Christians live the way they should live, and he's going to urge them, now get with it. Because when you understand what God has done and what God is doing in this world, now suddenly you understand, yes, it is important for me to live up to who God has made me to be and that the church achieves its purposes. Because God is at work in this world through His people. And so, it is in view of all that God has done for us that Paul urges Christians then to live worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If God's work involved creating this unity, the work of the Christian is to maintain the unity God has made. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We can't make, people cannot make the unity that God is making, bringing things in heaven and things on earth and bringing us who who are sinful and have done wrong and forgiving us and making us children of God, belonging to Him. We can't do any of that. But what we do need to do is maintain what He has done. Reflect on this for a second. If God's people can live any way they want and it's the consequences of living any way they want does not make any difference if it doesn't matter how God's people live then Paul has no reason to urge Christians to live up to the calling and to maintain the unity of the spirit the reason he's telling us to do these things is because it makes a difference in this world What happens if Christians live in ungodly ways? What impact does this have? Everyone is responsible for their own choices. They're responsible for whether they they fluctuate in that indecision until they die of whether or not they're going to respond to Christ. People are responsible for what they do. But can evil use God's people not living holy lives for its purposes? How many times has evil been able to influence those outside of Christ to hold back, to not take that step forward closer to God because God's people did not look like reflections of God at all? If what Paul is writing has any meaning at all, it is that how God's people live does make a difference in this world. And so he calls us and challenges us to live up to the calling that we've received. But what what guidance does he give? What help does he give And how to do this? Well, he's provided a short list of characteristics, you know, humility and, and bearing with each other. I would expect at this point, Paul, to just plunge in directly into a practical checklist. Here's what Christians need to do to live this way. Paul didn't do that. After urging them to live in a particular way to maintain the unity of the Spirit, Paul said, seems to be saying, you know, there's some things the church needs to know if it's going to preserve what God has built. It needs to know unity's foundation and unity's resources that bears repeating the church needs to know the foundation for unity and the resources for unity and so paul begins to check off seven items very quickly pillars of unity there is one body god is not creating many different churches but simply placing his people into one universal community of christ And this does not mean that whatever people might organize in the name of God constitutes that one body. Nor does it mean that the one body is limited to what one person might think it is. Some human set of criteria. It does mean that when God recognizes someone as responding to the gospel, God adds that person to the one body. And that community... That belongs to Christ. Unity is also possible because there is one spirit, not many different spirits. Unity is founded upon all of God's people receiving the same hope of their calling. God's people are not being called into different paths and different directions with different hopes. And again, there's only one Lord as well as one faith. Imagine the havoc and the divisiveness that would arise if, if God provided more than one Lord and and more than one faith to be followed. The unity of the Spirit is also built on there being one baptism. And again, this does not mean that whatever people might call baptism constitutes that one baptism. If I take some sand and I, I throw it in the air and I say, Ah, you've been baptized! that does not compel God to say yes that person has been baptized God gave one baptism and you described it in the gospel what this does mean is that since God has only given us one baptism then when anyone is baptized with that baptism God is placing that person into the one church that he's building There's not two baptisms putting people in different churches. There's one baptism. And because of this, it's imperative that we know how the gospel calls us to be baptized into Christ. Unity is possible because there's only one God and Father, not multiple gods pulling us in different directions. And so having quickly summarized these foundational pillars making possible the unity of the Spirit, Paul immediately outlines resources that Christ provided to the church, that this fledgling body could grow up into being a mature body. And Christ gave gifts. This is people with different functions. It was He who gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, that is, to build up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature person attaining to the measure of Christ's full stature. So, because of that, so we are no longer to be children tossed back and forth by waves and carried about by every wind of teaching, by the trickery of people who craftily carry out their deceitful schemes. But practicing the truth and love, we will in all things grow up into Christ who is the head. From him the whole body grows, fitted and held together through every supporting ligament as each one does its part. The body grows in love. Christian, live worthy of your calling. He's just described it. And so finally, only after providing this information about the the foundation for unity, and the resources that Christ gave for unity, does Paul now drill down into the practical aspects of behavior and attitude regarding how to live worthily of our calling and how to maintain the, the unity of the Spirit? It boils down to a simple idea. Live in new ways. You may wish to add this to your outline at the very bottom. There's a, a practical two-step process that Paul gives us The first is get rid of pagan thinking and pagan behavior. The second idea is embrace how God's people are supposed to think and how they're supposed to live. He puts it simply in these words, So I say this and insist in it in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking, You were taught with reference to your former way of life to lay aside the old man who is being corrupted in accordance with deceitful desires. You get rid of that. You get rid of the, the ways of living that created the rubble of life. And now you learn of Christ. You learn from Him. And so Paul tells Christians that as they learn of Christ. They are to be renewed in the spirit of their mind and to put on the new man who has been created in God's image, in righteousness and holiness that comes from the truth. To be renewed in our minds and and to learn of Christ is going to require time, time studying His Word and learning, time in prayer, time spent with fellow saints. Encouraging each other and and observing models of of those who have grown in Christ and learning how we need to reflect more and more the Son. And then in the rest of this letter, Paul is going to delve into a number of items, specific, concrete checklists of what living for Christ looks like, being made new in our minds, Don't steal. Work. Get rid of hurtful language. Be kind. Be loving. Be forgiving. Live in love just as Christ loved. Get rid of all sexual immorality. Get rid of greed. Gather with other Christians to sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. And then Paul will provide specialized instructions as well for those with different roles, for for husbands and wives, for for children, for those working for others, for those who are in control. He says, now here's how you live, serving the Lord in these capacities. And then finally in chapter 6, Paul closes with spiritual instructions about how to live in this spiritual world. He says, clothe yourselves with the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. These instructions, again, don't make any sense unless how God's people live does make a difference. If it doesn't matter how we live, then there's no need to arm ourselves and to deliberately live for God. Are you still outside of Christ? The apostle who saw the risen Lord and who received his message by revelation tells us that without Christ, we have no hope and we are without God. And a person living in that situation can eke out a life of activity and can try to find purpose and meaning in various different paths. But in the end, we all die. And whether that comes sooner than expected, or it comes later, we all stand before God accountable for all that we have done. And in spite of whatever good that person outside of Christ might have done, it could have been enormous. as a a philanthropist with resources. The problem is, is that it is our sin that has destroyed us and has left us spiritually dead. And the good news is that although our sin reduces us to this, God wants to do this with our life. Make us new. Make us His. Make us part of what He's doing in this world. He wants to forgive us, to forgive you and make you part of His wonderful project. The conversion language that we read in Ephesians chapter 2, it points to baptism, that time when a person is choosing to rely upon Christ. And God takes that person and raises them up from that water to be a new person brought together with the things of, of heaven raised up into the spiritual realms to be God's workmanship. And while any of us might live for a long time, there will come a day, whether it's today or another day, when it will be that person's last opportunity to choose to respond to Christ. And no one knows when they're going to encounter that last opportunity before they arrive at judgment. To choose to come to Christ, you don't have to have every question answered. You, don't, you do need to know that you've sinned and that Christ has died for you and been raised again for you. And you do have to choose to rely on Him for what He's made possible. For those of us who are already God's workmanship. Paul's intent in this letter was to encourage us to live worthily of the calling he's given us, to maintain the unity that God is building. You see, how we live does make a difference. And so we are to be deliberate in living for God. God has made us blameless, but we are to be deliberate in living for Him and to preserve what He has done in our lives. And God wants to use us as a member of His body, Christ's body, to accomplish the good that He's wanting to do in this world, a world that's racked with sin. This morning, if anyone has any need to respond to the Lord, to make known a prayer request, to, to ask of brothers and sisters, you know, pray for me, help me in living up to the calling. We have that opportunity now. You have that opportunity to take whatever step might be necessary. Let us stand and sing. When my way grow drear, precious Lord, lean good near when my life is all.